Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, if you were here with us last week, you know that Pastor Chris uh, kicked off a new sermon series for us. And it's a sermon series that will have us exploring this activity of God's people that we call worship. So what is worship? It's a question we're going to be pondering together for a while. Is worship something that we do maybe once a week, maybe in a place like this for an hour or so? Or is there something more to worship? Definitions that we might find in a dictionary include worship is to honor or to show reverence for or to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. Last week, Chris shared how a simpler definition of worship might be response to something great. Worship is a response. It's an action. And it reminds me of a time uh, quite a few years ago now when I was reading through a book that was a collection of Far Side cartoons. And as I spent quite a few minutes uh, going from page to page reading that collection, my friend who was near me after a while asked me, so Ben, you're, you're not much of a fan of Farside, huh? I said, you kidding? These things are hilarious. He said, um, but you're not laughing. I told him, no, no, I'm cracking up on the inside. <laughs> now, I was really, really enjoying those cartoons I was savoring the wit of Gary Larson. I was appreciating the creativity and the surprise and the craziness. But I was not responding. If worship is response and response to greatness, and if our worship as Christians is response to no less greatness than the God of the universe himself, then our worship will see us responding. It will be obvious. We will be taking action. Our worship is going to be more than reflecting and pondering and savoring, more than contemplating. Now, all those actions are actually classic Christian disciplines. They're part of our faith. Part of how we grow as disciples is to to consider the presence of God, to ponder his word, to meditate, to take in, to mull over who God is and what God has done. But true worship can't simply happen just in our brains, in our minds. Can't even just happen in our hearts. If true worship is a response to who God is and what God has done, it's going to see us acting, moving, responding. True worship will find us engaged in the world around us because of what we're thinking about God and feeling and believing about God. One of the passages that will anchor our exploration of worship over these weeks together is the one from Romans 12 that Pastor Chris shared last week. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that sounds pretty active. That's not just a thought experiment. In view of God's mercy, he says, in light of who God is and what God has done, we ought to be moved to do something as an act of worship. Now, as we read the Bible, it becomes pretty clear that worship really matters to God. It's very important to him. Last week, we witnessed this encounter between Moses and God, who spoke to Moses from a bush that was burning but didn't burn up. God told Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And sure enough, if we fast forward from Exodus 3 to Exodus 24, we will see that after the Israelites have been delivered from, from slavery and bondage in Egypt, after God had brought them through the wilderness, they indeed found themselves worshiping on that very mountain. They bound themselves in covenant promises with God. And on that mountain, they received from God through Moses the law, the law that would guide the love and lives of the people of God. And much of that law had to do with worship. What's appropriate and acceptable to God? How should altars be constructed? How should priests be consecrated? What are the rules of making sacrifices? How should the tabernacle be built? The place where God will meet face to face with God's people. In fact, the rest of the book of Exodus from chapter 24 to 40 and pretty much all of the book of Leviticus comprise the law, these instructions from God to God's people through Moses. And much of that law centers on worship that is pleasing to God. But before all of that, we find in our Bibles a book called Genesis. And in Genesis, before there are any rules, any regulations about worship, worship still shows up. People still respond to God. We read in Genesis 4, toward the very earliest account of the people that God created, that Eve became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Cain is a name that sounds like the Hebrew word for brought forth. And Eve said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, I remember when I was a little kid in Sunday school class learning this story of, of Cain and Abel. And I remember that the, the point of the story, at least as it was taught, was that God looks at the heart of the people who are worshiping him. Because it wasn't really that, 
that Cain's offering was, was somehow bad and, and Abel's was good, we see from behind the story that, that Cain was filled with anger and jealousy. We see that just after this passage, he would go on to murder his brother Abel. His heart, his motives, his life were not in the right place. Rather than seeking to please God, to do what is right, and to resist temptation as God had urged him, Cain instead gives full vent to his jealousy and his anger. So that's the story I learned when I was a kid, but it was only much later that I went back to the story and asked the question, so why are Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God in the first place? What's going on here? There's no indication in Scripture that Adam and Eve had done something like that. There's no sign that God had instructed them to do this or asked for offerings. The Hebrew word for these offerings, minha, is later used to describe free will offerings that are outlined in the Mosaic Law. Now, these aren't required sacrifices, but these are something that can simply be done as a, an expression of gratitude to God pretty much at any time. And so we see from this story that as Abel brought his free will offering to God, apparently unprompted, his heart seemed to be in the right place. But Cain's wasn't. And we're told that God looked on both the offering and the giver in these cases. He looked at Cain and his offering, at Abel and his offering, and perhaps most importantly, God seemed to look at their hearts. Now, maybe Cain was making his offering because he saw his brother do it and he wanted to keep up. Maybe Cain was somehow trying to, to get the favor of God, to gain his attention. We don't know. All we know is that these offerings seem to come out of nowhere, and that God looks at the offerings and the hearts of the givers. Abel and perhaps even Cain had recognized that the fruits of their labors in shepherding and farming were thanks to God and the ability and strength that he had given them. And so they chose to respond by bringing these offerings. And then just a, a few chapters later in Genesis 8, we see Noah, after being rescued along with his family from the floodwaters, after being kept safe in the ark, Noah builds an altar and he sacrifices animals on it. Again, this is long before there's any mention of altars or animal sacrifice in the Bible. This is the first time an altar is mentioned in the Bible, and it, it shows up here again as what seems to be a spontaneous act of worship to God, this, this heart response, this life response of thanks to God for what he has done. Last week, we saw that when God revealed his name in the burning bush conversation with Moses, God said, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now, if we look at the story of these three patriarchs named here, we see that they each had encounters with God that then resulted in their active response to what God had done. Let's look first at Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God called Abram and promised to make a mighty nation out of the family that would come from from Abram and his wife Sarai, even in their old age. And if we read the rest of the story, we see that that promise took a long time to come to fulfillment. It unfolded over the course of years. And during those years, Moses, or excuse me, Abram and Sarai both struggled with some pretty significant doubts. They were wondering, can we trust God? Can we take God at his word that what he promised to us is actually going to happen? And I can only imagine perhaps that over those years, Abram and Sarai had opportunity to walk past that altar that Abram had built. A physical reminder that yes, God had spoken to him. Yes, God had given them a tangible promise. And in that moment, in that encounter, Moses responded to this presence and message of God by building an altar as an act of worship, but also as a memorial to this moment, to this encounter with God. And we see something quite similar happen in the story of Isaac, who is in fact the child of this promise, born to Sarah and Abraham after years of waiting. We read in Genesis 26 that from there, Isaac went up to Beersheba. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. And so here we see another altar going up, another memorial to this presence and message of God, to the promise of God who once again says, I am with you and I will be with you. And I love the response of Isaac because he not only builds this altar, but he says, okay, if this is a place where God shows up and speaks, I'm gonna pitch my tent right here. I'm gonna dig a well. I am gonna camp right here. This is indeed holy ground. And then we come to Abraham's grandson, who is Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. That sounds comfortable, huh? He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done 
what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it as a way to anoint it. He called that place Bethel, meaning the house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. So again, we hear this time in a dream to Jacob, God naming himself and declaring his promises. God promises to be faithful to Jacob, to do great things through him and through his descendants. And Jacob responds by repurposing his pillow rock as a memorial to God. He props it up, makes it holy, sets it aside, anoints it with oil. And if you read the rest of Jacob's story, you'll see he goes on to build several altars because he has encounter after encounter with God. In her book, A Stone for a Pillow, Madeline Langle writes, for Jacob, the house of God was not a building, not an enclosure, but an open space with earth for the floor, heaven for the roof. It would be several generations before the ark of God was built and the tabernacle erected. For the early people of El Shaddai, the Almighty One, any place where God spoke to them became the house of God. And I think we can hear the quiver of excitement and awe in Jacob's voice. He said, surely this is the house of the Lord, and I simply was not aware of it. In biblical story after biblical story, these encounters between God and God's people show up, and we see this pattern that God acts, God appears, God speaks, and then God's people respond. It's as if the human response is, well, now, now I just need to do something. This is amazing. This is awesome. I've got to do something. It's this sense of nervous energy that's built up because of an encounter with God. And it's exactly what we see in the story of the transfiguration of Jesus that was read earlier. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white. And Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's, let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Peter says, oh, it's a really good thing that we're here because we can build stuff. We can do something, Jesus. This is an amazing moment. We, we've we've got to somehow do something. And I love how another translation puts this to say, Peter really didn't even know what he was talking about. He was just bubbling over. He had to do something. When's the last time you had, had a sense of pent-up nervous energy because you had had an encounter with God? Somehow you recognized that you were in God's presence, you had heard something from God, experienced something from God, and you're like, I've, I've got to do something. I have to respond somehow. We look at these biblical stories of people who are bringing offerings and building altars and setting up stones, wanting to do something. 
and we pause and we consider and we explore whether that impulse is in us as well or maybe the last time that it was. And if it's not there, if we don't have this sense of wanting to respond to God or if we recognize that that's pretty rare for us, maybe we should go back to where, to where Chris launched us last week as he reminded us that worship actually begins with awareness. Moses went to check out that weird burning bush that didn't burn up. He even started to have a conversation with a voice that spoke to him from the bush, but it wasn't until God revealed God's identity that he hid his face, that he recognized that he was on holy ground in the presence of God himself. And Jacob says out loud, he says, I missed it. He said, I was lying right here in the house of God and I had no clue. And in response, as he became aware, he set up that stone pillow. I think it's really easy for us, I know it's easy for me to be unaware of God's presence, unaware of the activity of God if we find ourselves rushing through life. If we end up getting self-focused, if we end up being distracted or caught up with anxieties of life around us, or maybe we even come to a place like this, we come to church and we simply don't take time to watch and notice and expect the presence of God. Watching and noticing, paying attention, whether it's in a church building or at school or at work or on a bus or in a park, this watching and waiting and noticing is what will help us become aware of God and then prepared to respond to God. A response to our awareness of, of God is what a life of worship, more than just an hour of worship, will look like. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, with awareness of the goodness and mercy and saving power of God, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. This idea of, of awareness, recognition that leads to to response really is part of the story of my own call to ministry. In the summer of 1996, I was working in northern Connecticut as a um, research combustion engineer, worked for a, a company that builds electric power plants, and uh, I was also heavily involved in my church as a volunteer in the youth ministry. And on a summer missions trip to Mexico, um, we did a lot of work, and each night we gathered as a team to debrief, to reflect, to share, and in a time of worship. And one of those nights, uh, the person who was leading worship that night gave us a, a blank index card and said, okay, tonight we're going to be taking an offering, but we're, we're not going to be passing a plate and collecting money. Instead, I want you to take some time and think about what is it that you would want to give to God? What do you want to offer to God from your life? And so after some time of, of prayerful reflection and consideration, I remember writing on that card, God, because of all that you have done for me, I offer you my, my life. Now at that point, I had already been a Christian for quite a while, but I don't think that until that moment I had really surrendered the direction of my life to God. But it began with that awareness, it began with me recognizing what has God done for me? 
that would prompt a response of me offering something back to God. And so that night began uh, a two-year journey that found me uh, leaving that career and, and ending up in my first full-time ministry position and then eventually being called into full-time pastoral ministry. As you came in this morning, you were given a card that's going to invite you to consider and respond. I'll invite Pastor Chris to come up and uh, provide some music for us as we take some time to prayerfully reflect. For those of you joining online, these cards say, in response to who God is and what God has done, I choose to. And then there's a lot of space for us to write whatever we would like to respond. This morning, how are you aware of God's presence in your life? How are you aware of what God has done or is doing to what God has spoken or is speaking into your life? And how might you choose to respond? Or maybe this morning you find yourself simply calling out to God, God, I want to hear from you. God, maybe I've never really seen you be obvious in my life. Take this time however you choose. Open yourself to whoever God leads. And we'll close in just a few minutes. These cards will be for you to keep as you leave.
over the next few weeks together, <clears throat> we're going to continue to consider how we might respond as God's people to the grace and mercy of God. How might our lives become a response of worship? How do we live a life of response of worship as the church that's sent to do justice and to love mercy in the world? How do we respond to God as we gather in times of corporate worship? And how do we as living sacrifices serve one another sacrificially? Next week we'll have an opportunity in a time when we gather after our fellowship hour to consider what does a life of response look like in our own context. But today may you continue to hear from God. May you know that God hears you as you respond. Would you join me in prayer? Loving, saving, merciful God, thank you that you still meet us. God, sometimes we long for your voice to be just as clear as it seemed to be at times when you spoke to certain people in these old stories from the Bible. But God, we thank you that you do still speak today. Would you give us hearts and minds and lives that are aware of you? And may we be people who more and more respond to you. Father, thank you for sending us Jesus and for the opportunity you've given each of us to respond to him. We pray in his holy name. Amen.